CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another shut-ins edition of Political Rewind. I hope you're all doing well out there, working out of your homes and apartments for the most part. And to those of you who are still going into supermarkets, uh, restaurants that are at the very least doing carry-out service, uh, collecting uh, trash, which has got to be one of the most difficult jobs to undertake at a period of time like this. We send our best out to all of you for continuing to keep us uh, going uh, during these very, very difficult times. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show for you today. Before I introduce the panel, just a couple of quick updates on the coronavirus news. As of 7 o'clock last night, the last time that we got reports from the uh, Department of Public Health on uh, the figures, Georgia had 800 confirmed cases of coronavirus. That's up 180 cases in just one day. Unfortunately, two more people have died, which brings the death total to 26. Uh, the preponderance of uh, the cases continue to be in Metro Atlanta, although we know that there are uh, places in, in counties around the state that still are getting cases. And of course, the hotspot continues to be down in Doherty County and the Albany area. Um, testing, we're getting more figures these days on testing in Georgia. And so we know that there uh, are commercial labs in Georgia or working in Georgia that are reported uh, that they have now done 3,824 tests, um, 725 of them in just the last day. 631 people out of those 3,800 have tested positive. And the Georgia Public Health Facility has uh, conducted 1,245 tests, 324 of them in just one day. They've had 169 positives. And to this date, we've still only had a little more than 5,000 tests conducted in Georgia. It's a little difficult. It's been difficult in the past to get a lot of data out of the public health folks about just how the uh, testing is going and the positives and negatives. But we're continuing to get more and more information as this emergency goes on to uh, be able to figure out how extensive the virus really is here in the state. All right, all that said, is that we do have a lot to talk about today, and thank goodness we have a wonderful panel to do it. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me on most Tuesdays, and so she is on the show today from her uh, home, just as I'm doing the show out of my house. Tamar, how are you doing? How are you holding up as you continue your exile from the AJC newsroom? <laughs> Learning my way around all the, the digital FaceTime, Zoom, all those fun programs. We're actually FaceTiming <laughs> right now. <laughs> yes, we are. We do have a group FaceTime going that you're on. Tom Faust is on it. I'm here. Uh, uh, not everybody uh, has access to it. James Salzer, who is an AJC legislative reporter and covers the budget. Uh, Salzer, you're a pretty sophisticated guy. Uh, you're working out of home, but you, you don't you don't have a device to FaceTime us on, huh? Uh, I, I probably do. I was just in meetings until five minutes before the call, so I didn't get a chance to set it up. Oh, okay. 
Well, thank you for joining us because we have a lot to talk about in terms of the state and its finances during the show today. I'm also really thrilled that Dr. Ellen Abramowitz, political science professor from Emory University, and I, I should add, whenever Ellen's on the show, that he is also one of the great prognosticators of elections and uh, has continued to do that in the 2020 cycle, although things are changing, I think, probably by the day in terms of the factors that go into his calculations for uh, the election. And Alan, one of the reasons it's particularly terrific to have you here today is this would have been today George's presidential preference primary, and instead we're all sitting at our houses and waiting for that now to take place on May 19th. I suppose, Alan, it's a good thing that the uh, election was moved with with conditions today. People would not likely have gone to the polls, would they? Uh, I think that's right. Um, so uh, hopefully by May 19th, uh, conditions will be improved enough that people will feel comfortable going to the polls. Um, it would be nice if people could also continue to uh, you know, vote by absentee uh, ballot or uh, mail, but I, I don't think they have that ability at this point. Yeah, we're waiting to get more information. The Secretary of State's office, Brad Raffensperger, who was on the show just last week, said that they were going to do everything they could to get absentee ballot applications out broadly, but we're still waiting for some specificity around that, Alan. So I think I think you're yeah. right. We've got to see how that comes together in the w- weeks ahead. Yes. Yeah, that will have a big impact on the uh, on the remaining turnout. A lot of people have already voted, uh, but um, it would make it a lot easier and you'll get a much better turnout, I think, if it's possible to vote absentee or vote by mail. We're seeing that around the country in the last round of primaries. The turnout was much greater in states that uh, have extensive uh, mail-in and absentee voting than in in states that that do not have that provision. Absolutely. Uh, Let's talk for a few minutes, um, Tamar, about the fact that Governor Kemp held a news conference late yesterday afternoon Uh, There have been an awful lot of people who have been wondering if he was going to take dramatic action to uh, ask people to shelter in place, to restrict businesses uh, in in a dramatic fashion. And uh, what we got from him late yesterday afternoon was an order to shut bars, shut down bars and nightclubs, to prohibit public events of 10 or more people with a caveat, unless you can maintain six feet of distance between the people who are gathering uh, it in those situations. Let's uh, just listen to a little of what he had to say about why he's doing this. These measures are intended to ensure the health and safety of Jordans across our state. And I would ask for everyone's cooperation over the next two weeks. They will protect the medically fragile, mitigate potential exposure in public venues, and allow the state to ramp up emergency preparedness efforts as cases increase in each region. Um, So he said that, and then he called upon Georgians to play a significant role in helping to stop the spread of the virus. Let's listen to that. While we have taken strategic direct action today, I am calling on my fellow citizens to fight this virus with everything you got. We are all part of this solution. 
If your friends, neighbors, or local organizations are not complying, call them out or report them to us. Tomorrow, the governor continues to express a, a reluctance to do what uh, we now know has happened in, I think we're up to 16 states covering 158 million people, which is to basically order people to a shelter in place. And Kemp just doesn't want to take that step. Exactly. And, and he's been under such increased pressure over the last couple of days, not only from Democrats and, and public health leaders, but also an increasing number of Republicans. And this, these steps that he announced yesterday were almost kind of a, a halfway position. Um, yesterday, he ordered shelter in place for medically fragile residents, um, elderly people and, and folks with immune problems. Uh, but still, he didn't take it as far as many others. And in the meantime, we've seen other municipalities, including the mayor of Atlanta, um, institute an order for, for her people to, to shelter in place, people living in the city of Atlanta. So it's interesting to see the number of municipalities trying to step in, um, whereas the governor has, has shown that uh, he doesn't want to take that step just yet. James, you're, you spend a great deal of your time, although I know people are gathering at the state capitol right now, you, but you do know the, the environment down there. You know the politics of the uh, uh, folks at the capitol. What, what's your speculation as to why the governor continues to be reluctant to uh, take these much more significant steps and instead to say it's up to all of us as citizens to really be the final enforcers? What, what do you right. sense about I, all that? Yeah, I kind of wonder if it's not. Um, I mean, we're we're also hearing from like mayors and small towns around the state who haven't had any coronavirus cases saying uh, I'm all for local control. And that's, you know, that's a, as you know, that's a kind of endless argument at the state capitol that but the, the, the state is uh, and the legislature is for local control until they're against it until something comes up that they don't like, um, that cities and counties do. But, you know, that, that may play a role in it. Um, cause clear, I mean, clearly if you, if you were out this weekend, which was a beautiful weekend, you, you saw examples of, of, um, of groups of families. I mean, I live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of young families and, and there were families having play dates, um, at, at, at the park cross street from where I live. So there's clearly people who just don't think, you know, this is a big deal and or, or, or you know, are taking this as a, as a vacation. So it's not the majority, but there are examples of that. And I think everybody's kind of seeing that, which is what's making people kind of nervous um, about about, you know, what's going to happen. But I think in the in the governor's case, I mean, my, my guess is that that has a lot, a lot to do with the fact that there are still many areas of state that don't have coronavirus cases he doesn't want he wants to do as much as he can to help the businesses stay open and um and he's letting kind of municipalities and counties make all the decisions on you know what they're going to do so um alan i want to uh, ask your thoughts on this but but i want to give you some new information um yeah just a few minutes ago we've learned that the georgia municipal association this morning urge the leaders of all 538 cities across the state to declare public health emergencies, shut down non-essential businesses, uh, and take the actions as individual municipalities that the governor simply has not done. Um, So is this an example of, as James is saying, a Republican uh, reluctance to impose top-down 
uh, orders, rules on local governments, and and to what end in this case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. Um, we're seeing many, many cities around around the state impose these sorts of, of restrictions, but the problem is, of course, uh, it's uneven, and therefore uh, people can easily uh, go from one city to another in search of finding venues that are still open, for example. And uh, that just, you know, spreads the problem around. And so it's, 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 it's a pretty half-hearted kind of step that, that the governor's taken. I find it rather remarkable, too, that he's uh, ordered the most vulnerable people to shelter in place, but the rest of us can continue to go about our business. So in other words, he's saying, you protect yourself. Uh, he didn't put it this way, of course, but basically he's putting the burden on the most vulnerable members of, of our society to kind of protect themselves instead of putting the burden on those of us who are healthy to protect the most vulnerable, which is, I think, what the public health experts are really uh, a- asking us to do. So, um, you know, I just have a feeling that this is not the, the last that we're going to hear from the governor about this. And uh, eventually, I think we're going to get to that place where, where, where a number of other states are, and an increasing number of states are um, at, at some time in, in the future. Another problem is that the president just seems to be waffling back and forth about this as well. And I think we, we need to talk about that because he's now indicating that, well, he's considering may, maybe we can kind of call this off in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, he's worried about the effect on the economy. So that, that's very concerning, I think, to the public health experts. That's that's become I think kind that, of a, tomorrow. Become, I was gonna say that's become kind of a uh, go ahead, James. A, yeah, this, that's become kind of a re, uh, Republican talking point. And I've noticed on on, uh, on Twitter that there have been more congressmen and 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 politicians in Washington saying uh, the cure is worse than the than the disease. And yeah, so you know, I think I think we are hearing more and more of that. I mean, that's a very, very dangerous yep, position, it seems to me. Uh, and, and it's just going to cause this uh, pandemic to spread you know, more widely uh, and, and end up overwhelming our, our, our health care facilities even more than they're already being overwhelmed. And, and uh, you know, I, I think he's going to, if he tries that, I'm sure he's going to get a lot of a pushback from the public health community and hopefully even from some of the advisors around him there. Tomorrow, you, you're you're uh, you, for those of who who did not see it. Of course, the president was once again in the uh, press briefing room, uh, uh, giving the news conference of the day about coronavirus, and it was at it was the most, uh, I think, a clearest message he sent. Yes, about wanting to end the uh, draconian restrictions that states and communities have been placing on businesses and on movement, free movement, uh, in saying, I think we're going to revisit this in about a week. We can't keep business shut down forever. Uh, and uh, we've learned a lot, was the president's message. We know, we understand social distancing. We know washing hands. So he essentially was saying, let's try to put this behind us and get back to uh, commerce as usual tomorrow. And he's 
floated some some different ideas about what all of this could look like, bringing some sectors of the economy back to life or potentially leaving certain hotspots still with their shelter-in-place orders like Seattle, like New York City, but then other areas that are less impacted, kind of bringing them back online, so to speak. But at the same time, that goes against what a lot of his own health experts, including, including um, Anthony Fauci, the, um, the infectious disease expert, um, you know, who's been saying, no, we're, we're making this choice on purpose in order to protect our our hospitals and our our most vulnerable people, and we should continue to do that. So we need to let, let's talk about it, James. This brings us to uh, your area of expertise, which is state finances, budgeting, and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, it's it's we do recognize, I think, all of us that uh, the kind of measures that are being taken in many places across the country to shut things down entirely are having a, an enormous negative impact on the economy, on businesses. There are questions tomorrow in a little while. We're going to talk about an article you published today about how small businesses in Metro Atlanta are being affected by this. So, so there is, it, we have to at least be mindful, James, that uh, to fight the virus, we're doing significant damage to our economies and, and, you can understand why this is of great concern to a great to a great many people out there, even though we know we've got to protect people. So, James, with that in mind, uh, you have written a piece in which you talk about how the virus uh, is really, really uh, likely to hit Georgia revenues very, very hard. And uh, you're concerned in, in one of the pieces you've posted on the AJC uh, about how the state funds even the rest of the mid-year budget, which takes us through June 30th. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So with, with economic activity lessening and, and as this goes on, um, that obviously means um, you know, people aren't working, people aren't going out, they're not, and they're not spending as much as they would. So, so state tax revenues go down um, in a, in a, if this had happened in like August or September, the state the state fiscal year runs from from July first to June thirtieth. So if this had happened, you know, in July even, um, you know, where businesses were shut down, um, the state would have had the better part of a year to figure out what to do. Um, in this case, the state has already passed a mid year budget, which kind of is what what the state will spend for various services uh, all the way from from paying teachers to public health care uh to state patrol to to um to the prisons agency so so what they what they 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 use mostly income taxes and sales taxes to pay for that so this happening right now this is kind of the prime season for the state to collect income taxes obviously because usually april 15th is tax day um, so they they're going to see a very significant decline in revenue coming in to pay for the lab, the services for the last three months of the year. So they're they're kind of getting hit from both ends because they're spending more on public health uh, programs to fight the virus um, at the same time that they're getting there's less money coming in. And un- unlike the federal government, federal government. You know, will all, is also getting less revenue. But you know, as we've seen forever, they just borrow more money. Um, and and they and the, you know the 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 package that they're going to put out 
um, the coronavirus package will will be borrowed money. Um, the state can't do that. Uh, at the end of the fiscal year, June 30th, they have to have a balanced budget under, under the state constitution. So um, the, the the governor's people are having to run, you know, the budget people are probably running nonstop scenarios about how uh, how they keep state government operating um, because there's only three months left in the fiscal year. And like I said, they've got to balance the budget. So, James, uh, how would this affect uh, ordinary Georgians like like us? I mean, what impact could all of this have on state services, on um, aspects of the, the the state budget that plays right into our economy? Um, what do we need to be looking out for here? I mean, I think I, I think one of the things is that I don't know how short of them they i mean they, they there is a, a lo- fairly large uh, reserve fund that the, that the governor may use to um both pay for more coronavirus um services and to fill the, pay you know uh, fund the budget but the the I, I the the question i have is about how does how do state government keep paying the salaries of all the people who, I mean, there's like 70,000 maybe yeah. state employees. And then there's another 50,000 in the university system. Um, where do they get the money to keep pay, pay, paying people's salaries? Cause a lot of, I mean, a lot of things are, are shut down already, but you know, you can't shut down the state. You're not going to shut down the state patrol. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to close prisons and let, let everybody out. Um, you're not going to let juvenile offenders out and just close, you know, prisons. Um, so you're not going to let go, uh, you know, the majority, uh, in a lot of places, the majority of, uh, pay for the 120,000 state public school teachers are paid for by the state. So, um, and the way it works is the state essentially sends out allocations to these agencies. So, um, the question will, if this drags on, the question will be like in May and June, what is their allocation going to be? What, how much money are they going to get? Let me get uh, Tamar and then Alan in on this. Uh, Tamar? I think state legislators face kind of three choices as, as James lays out in all of, his, all of his stories. They can dip into the rainy day fund, which an, under Governor Deal, they, they were able to kind of replenish after the Great Recession. They can cut state services um, for the, the remainder of the fiscal year and going into the new one that begins in July. Or they could appeal to Congress for a bailout, which is what Governor Kemp and a lot of other governors um, did in a letter yesterday asking for block grants to help mitigate a lot of this damage. And that seems to be what Congress is on par to do right now as they're negotiating this this $2 trillion rescue package. But there's a real question about how much money is going to be available, what that money is going to look like, the types of restrictions that they're going to place on local governments, and just how much it can actually save state services or if cuts are still going to be needed elsewhere. You know, Alan, yeah. you were the first to mention. Go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say that I, I think I think that is going to be a component of this uh, ballot, which now looks like, at least as as of last time I checked, it, it looks like it's on track to to actually get passed today. Um, I mean, it looks like as of early, think, late yeah. last night, very very close to reaching an agreement, and I think they have to uh, do that. So so that that will provide some money. Uh, but I think they're, you know, they're going to have to do more uh, going going forward because to allow states to uh, state budgets to collapse and 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 massive layoffs uh, uh, of state employees 
is just going to exacerbate uh, this this economic downturn that that we're entering right now. So, so Alan, it does strike me you were the first one to mention uh, early in the show the parallels you see between the way Kemp is responding uh, in, in his most recent news conference about this and the way President Trump has responded. Yeah, they they may be on parallel tracks in the in the sense that they both are uh, trying to balance concerns between protecting against the virus and hoping to somehow keep the economy moving forward at least uh, uh, to an extent. Uh, but right now, the caution ought to be, how do we make sure we, we, we put the virus behind us? And, but it does seem like Kemp and Trump may be on the same track on that, Alan. Yeah, I, I mean, um, we haven't heard Kemp talking yet about we're going to just Stop, you know, end end these restrictions any and sometime in in the very near future. I I think that um, when you hear him talk about this, you you know he 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 sounds more reasonable than the president, frankly, who who has a tendency to veer off at times in in into on tangents and and uh, use uh, his uh, his uh, press conferences as, as an opportunity to to uh, attack the, the the media and his political enemies. Um, but at the same time, I, I think we're seeing a very uneven response here across the states, and 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 uh, some of that reflects differences in public attitudes toward this crisis that um, that still exist. They're 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 lessening somewhat, but um, there's still a pretty big partisan divide among the public in terms of uh, how people view this situation and how how seriously they take it, and uh, in general. What we've seen is that um, in the polling, Repu- Republicans generally um, don't see it as quite as serious, at least until recently, um, or haven't seen it yeah, ex- uh, as seriously ex- as Democrats. I'm so- uh, Axios uh, just released a new poll on that, and the gap between Republicans and Democrats is now 11 points, uh, Republicans being less concerned yeah. about the seriousness of the virus That's uh, it used to be a, a far far bigger gap but let me go yeah. back to what i said about kemp and trump i want to be careful about this i think it is absolutely true and we have given him uh, credit on this show that governor kemp has had a sober uh, serious approach to this and he has certainly not uh, conducted himself as he's dealt with this the way President Trump has sort of thrown out theories and ideas left and right. All I yeah. meant by what I suggested, James, was that perhaps part of the governor's thinking about not shutting everything down is trying to protect at least some aspects of the state's economy to keep some revenues flowing in uh, to the budget, James. Right. I, I don't know that it's necessarily, I don't. I don't know how much he's thinking about it from a budget standpoint, but I do think he is thinking about it from a, a business standpoint that that um, you know the restaurant in Waycross or or Dublin um, should be able to stay open as long as they can um, to keep those people employed. You know, yes, in the end, it it helps it, it brings in a little bit more revenue. But look, the the amount of the amount of decline in revenue. Um, is we're going to see like numbers we've never seen before. Um, so it's keeping that restaurant open in, in Dublin isn't necessarily going to make a huge uh, you know, impact on, on kind of the, the, the big 
pitcher, but you know this is going to be much worse probably at least for the next few months in, in terms of revenue and, and the budget situation than the Great Recession. And as you remember during the Great Recession, the only way kind of Georgia, even though they had cuts and furloughed teachers and, and laid off people, um, the only way services kind of kept going was that the state, uh, excuse me, the the uh, the federal uh, stimulus package pumped like five or six billion dollars into the state right. budget. Otherwise, you know, stuff would, I mean, literally would have collapsed uh, without federal intervention. So, um, you know, that's kind of why uh, he was, uh, Governor Kemp was one of the, was was very quick last week in, during a, a, a phone call with the president um, to say, um, y'all need to consider um, grants to states because, you know, we're right. providing, we're, we're the ones who are actually here dealing with this situation. Um, many of our resources are going into this. Um, and yet we're in a situation where we're, we, you know, we're, we're going broke. So, um, so, you know, you, he, he was kind of the first, and I, I don't know if there were democratic governors who did it as well, but I know he made a big point to, to president Trump saying, you know, we need this help. I think all the governors yeah, are delivering that message to uh, to the president right now. The other thing I'd point out about about Georgia's economy and the, and the budget is that Metro Atlanta is the engine that drives the economy of the state. Uh, it, it, of course, Metro Atlanta includes a huge percentage of the population, uh, but it also really is the economic driver for for the entire state. And so, and and Metro Atlanta is already being heavily uh, impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, epidemic and uh, the idea that you can wall off certain you know, parts of the state and hope that that it doesn't it doesn't get there just because it, it's not having a big effect yet I think is very unrealistic. People move around uh, uh, the state anyway, and and you know you're you're not going to be able to stop that entirely. And I just think that um, you know this this is uh, going to continue for quite a while, and we better be prepared uh, for that. And and the, the stronger action we take now. I think, you know, everyone talks about bending the curve, but that's what we've got to do. Uh, if the stronger action we take now, uh, you know, the fewer people ultimately who are going to get sick and, and die as, as a result of, of this uh, of this epidemic. All right, let's do this. Um, let's take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about the impact, the economic impact, with uh, especially starting with Tamar Hallerman, who's uh, – written a good piece on small businesses and how they're struggling right now, and then take advantage of the fact that we have Alan Abramowitz with us to talk about how this entire uh, coronavirus crisis uh, seems may uh, have a huge impact on uh, the election cycle of 2020. We'll do all that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back for Political Rewind. Uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz of Emory University is with us. Uh, James Salzer, who covers uh, the budget like nobody at the state capitol. And senior AJC reporter 
Tamar Hallerman are with us today. Just a quick reminder to all of you who are listening. I want to apologize in advance. Well, I'm not quite in advance, halfway through this show, uh, for the fact I sometimes am interrupting, stepping on some of our panelists. We don't have, we really can't avoid that because uh, we don't see everybody. And, and <laughs> so uh, I apologize to the panelists and also to all of you who are listening out there. I'm certainly not trying to be rude. All right, uh, Tamara, you did have a terrific piece on the front page of the AJC this morning. You talked to some small business uh, folks who are really struggling to survive in uh, this climate. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, I was looking at businesses who are affected by orders from mayors like uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, shuttering a lot of, quote, non-essential businesses, things like gyms, movie theaters, that sort of thing, um, who all of a sudden are, are experiencing a sharp decline in revenue and how they're managing. And you're seeing some who are scrambling to reinvent themselves or find new revenue streams. And you're seeing others who are just kind of freaking out and trying to and, and hoping that the worst doesn't happen. Um, and, and the main person I spent a lot of time talking to was the owner of King of Pops, the, the craft pop um, ice, uh, ice pop maker who you often see uh, along the Beltline or in Piedmont Park. And the, the co-founder, Stephen Carr, started the company after he got laid off during the, the Great Recession. And they were doing really well. They were about to hit $10 million in revenue uh, ahead of their 10-year anniversary. And, and he was saying that last week he had to lay off more than half of his employees. And now they're selling things like vegan chili and doing all sorts of things to try and get folks to continue shopping with him. And, and a lot of folks don't really know what's going to come. Um, it's, uh, it's, I happen to know a young man who, uh, has, he's been kind of for years known as the uh, king of pop-up restaurants, Jarrett Steber, who has been a chef for a long time, a celebrated chef in Atlanta. Jarrett for about the last three years has been looking to raise money to finally have a brick and mortar restaurant of his own, uh, he it was anticipated as being one of the big openings of the year for people who care about fine dining uh, or or who care about good food. And yeah. uh, he opened it about three weeks ago. And uh, in fact, we're going to have Jared on the show at some point in the not too distant future to talk about what it's like to be a restaurateur in a situation like this. But uh, James Allen, you can't your heart goes out to uh, sm small businesses who are trying to survive all this. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah, and I was gonna say that you know, we have. James, our, I was gonna say our restaurants um, in in my neighborhood um, went pretty quickly to um, to takeout because they, you know, we I live in a, a neighborhood with a lot of kind of uh, outside dining uh, opportunities, and um, they realized how quickly that was gonna have to that was gonna be probably shut down. So. Uh, we now, our, quote, dining experience is driving up in a car and having somebody uh, bring out food for us. <laughs> yeah, and, and, that, and that's and happening to cater. 
And, and in certain yeah. ways, restaurants at least have a revenue stream in that a lot of them are able to do things like curbside pickup and, and delivery. But when you think about places like gyms, and especially small gyms, not, not chains that have nice websites where they can easily start streaming classes like yoga and bar and Pilates pretty easily, but some of these smaller gyms that just don't have the infrastructure to do that. In places like in Atlanta, they've been ordered shut. And I talked to one business owner of Lion's Den Fitness in Midtown, and he mentioned that 95% of his business has dried up over the last few weeks. And yeah. he really just doesn't know what to do um, and, and what's going to happen. He only has three employees and it, his website right now is just not built for streaming workouts. What do you do in situations like that? You see others who are just kind of trying all sorts of things out. I talked to one owner of, a, um, of an art school in Vinings um, and she was having kids take piano lessons over FaceTime and having moms hold cell phones over the keys of the piano as, <laughs> as their kids were playing to show the instructor. Yeah. You know, and that, that might work for now, but a lot of these businesses, especially ones that are seasonal, um, are really, really struggling. This music school owner mentioned that summer camps are the key to her business. That's where she gets 70% of her profits. If she can't hold camps, if people can't gather, she's kind of screwed for the year. And same for King of Pops, Cop, yep. bleh, King of yep. Pops where he mentioned he's so reliant on spring and summer gatherings, things like farmer's markets, corporate retreats, the pool, that sort of thing. And if people can't gather, what does he do? Yeah. A lot of non-profit organizations too, I I think are are, are struggling here. Like, I mean, the, um, the Atlanta track club, I know was trying to go forward with the Peachtree road race and they're still planning on holding it on July 4th. uh, And maybe, maybe that will happen, but uh, you know, if it doesn't, uh, and if they lose that revenue, and I think they may be, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening right now, but they may be struggling to get people to register for the race. I mean, that accounts for the vast majority of their revenue uh, to run the organization. So um, they're going to have to figure out some way of dealing with that. A lot of professional organizations that are uh, supposed to hold conferences, I mean, things like that are also going to be uh, dramatically affected by this. Alan, let me turn, uh, if we can, for a few minutes. You know, this is Political Rewind, and uh, so we are going to talk politics uh, on occasion here, although coronavirus is dominating much of our uh, uh, discussions on the show these days. But um, let's talk about what we think this crisis is, how it may upset uh, the conventional thinking about the 2020 election. You were uh, quoted in a Bloomberg a piece the other day saying that this crisis you think is very bad for President Trump's reelection bid. The article, I don't know that you shared the uh, uh, thinking at the beginning of that article, which suggested at the beginning of the start of this year, it looked pretty good for Trump for reelection. The, you know, the economy was booming, unemployment was way down, and now we're hit with this. I don't know whether mm-hmm. you shared that opinion to begin with, but you certainly think that right now this is going to have a major impact on the presidential race. Yes, I think it will. Um, I, I, I would not say that the president was cruising to a second term even before this happened. I mean, if, if, if you look at his, his approval rating was underwater. It's been underwater since the beginning of his presidency. Um, and if you look at the uh, polling on a you know, potential matchup 
with the likely Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. He's behind Biden in almost every national poll and in many of the swing state polls. So and that was before this happened. Now, um, normally when you have a severe economic downturn, it's very bad news for the incumbent president and the president's party, um, especially when it comes at this time uh, where voters' uh, uh, assessments of the economy are being formed that are going to affect the way they uh, feel about the president and his party as they prepare to vote in November. I have to say that that this is a little bit different, though. So, um, yes, we're going to have a very severe economic downturn. We don't know how long it's going to last, but we don't know exactly how voters are going to respond to it because this is not like, you know, an ordinary recession or an ordinary economic downturn. Uh, this is something brought on by um, you know, a public health crisis, and so it's different from any economic downturn that we've seen uh, before. And uh, whether voters will uh, blame the president and the president's party for this, I think will, will depend in part on, on uh, how they respond, how the president responds to this and how effective that, that response is. Um, but normally that's uh, certainly uh, a very bad news when you combine it with a, a low approval rating. So uh, it, 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 I'm curious about another aspect of this. James and Tamar, let me ask you to, to weigh in on this after we give Alan a chance at this. Um, he is dominating the news cycles, uh, yes. Alan. Now, I get the fact that there are people who are evaluating whether they think he's uh, dominating them in a positive or a negative way. But the fact of the matter is uh, he is – He's everywhere on the news, whereas Joe Biden, who is the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party, has virtually disappeared. So to what extent, when you are, in fact, leading the charge on a national emergency like this, right. does that, in fact, give you a certain edge, especially because your base seems to be sticking with him no matter what? Right. Yeah. So what we're seeing already, I think, is some indication of a kind of rally event. Normally when there's a national crisis, the public will rally behind the president. They see the president as the leader uh, uh, who is going to uh, direct the response to the crisis. And so, you know, the, the most dramatic example of that being 9-11, where George Bush's approval rating went from around 50% to around 90% in a matter of days. Um, what we're seeing so far with this is a little bit different though. Um, there's some indication that in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, and now with, with the president finally seeming to recognize, at least for now, that this is a very serious crisis and he is taking it seriously and trying to deal with it, um, there's been a modest uptick uh, in his approval ratings, and particularly on the question of how he's handling uh, the response to the pandemic, we've seen that the polling so far, uh, which is limited, but suggests that um, it's a little you know, more positive than negative, but not, decide, not by a wide margin. So people are still very divided in, in, in their assessments of the president. But that's the initial response. You know? and, and so I think what's going to matter more is how the public feels about the president's overall performance and especially his handling of this pandemic uh, in, a, in, in a few weeks and months uh, as we get closer to the election. 
and and at that point, I, I think, of course, uh, we're going to see uh, the uh, Democratic uh, uh, challenger uh, getting a lot more coverage uh, on this. For now, the president can easily dominate the news cycle. Um, that's not going to last forever. And I think as we move into the yeah, summer me, uh, and then yeah, into the fall campaign, I don't th- I don't think he'll be able to do that as much. Uh, Tamara, yeah. just to be, before we get to a break, uh, just to pick up on what uh, Alan just said, if you look at the real clear uh, politics uh, averages in terms of how the president is handling this crisis, it's split. 48% say he's they approve of the way he's handling it. 47% disapprove. So uh, well within the margin of error and basically a tie on how the American people think the president's handling this, Tamara. Exactly. And it, it could be an opportunity for him. I mean, he he in the past couple of days has talked about how he sees himself as a wartime president. And I think that that kind of shows a, a lot about how he's approaching all of this. And I, I think he wants to be like like George W. Bush after after 9-11 or even Obama, who was reelected after um you know, the the Great Recession in 2008, I think voters look kindly upon leaders who are able to kind of usher the, the country through trying moments. But the question is, when he keeps kind of changing course and, and on the one hand saying, you know, we have to take all these drastic measures to help shield uh, sick folks, but then also let's reopen the economy. I, I think it's hard to kind of keep track sometimes of, of what he's doing. And it'll be curious to see how voters respond to him in the weeks and months, because as um, as Professor Abramowitz mentioned, I think the second quarter tends to be kind of a very critical time for a lot of voters. And it will be in Georgia as well, since we are taking our, our primary vote in, in May now. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way right now. We still have a lot more to talk about when we come back with James Salzer, Tamar Hallerman, and uh, Elena Bramowitz. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, James, it, I, I, I want to get you to start the conversation, uh, if you will, about the latest on what has been going on with uh, Senator Kelly Leffler, uh, Governor Kemp's choice to fill the Johnny Isaacson seat uh, until uh, there's an election for that uh, post in the uh, uh, fall in November. Um, The story about her having been part of a briefing uh, uh, among senators uh, about the severity, uh, propo- the potential severity of the corona- coronavirus pandemic in late January, and then the timing of uh, sales of some millions of dollars, maybe one point seven to three million dollars of stock, right. has has continues to p- pick up steam. It's not going away. And uh, I mentioned on the show yesterday, I've been a little surprised that there are the calls for her to step down from that job in the same way that Richard Burr has been advised to step down or been urged to step down from his position in the Senate, uh, that they've accelerated so quickly. Um, where is this all headed? And do you imagine that Governor Kemp is going to have to be, give some thinking to how serious this could become in the weeks ahead? Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting issue because those of us who are not in Washington um, don't and, and and you know working regular jobs we 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 look at this like 
oh, these people are most senators or many senators, at least are multimillionaires and they're selling stock. This is this is like one example. But this happens all the time. They're they're buying and selling stock on industries that that they essentially are passing laws about on a regular basis. And in Washington, it's kind of seen as, you know, that's the way we have a rule. We passed a rule that said this is allowed. So this this is perfectly fine. Well, if you're if you're somebody working at a your waitress at a, uh, or a waiter at a, a restaurant, you just lost your job and you see this, uh, you know, somebody who is worth a, a huge amount of money buying and selling stock after this, um, what she her response has been is that, oh, well, we have uh, you know, uh, we have we have financial advisors essentially who are who are selling this stock. Well, no, you know, most people don't have financial advisors um, to to decide, you know, what millions of dollars worth of stock they can they can buy or sell. So while it sounds like what she's saying is within the rules, I, I think most people are probably like are are like either either stunned or numb to the fact that they even have a rule that allows this. And and so this definitely is not going to go away. Um, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine uh, uh, Representative Collins, you know, has and and the Democrats in this race are, you know, they're thinking this is the the, uh, the best thing that could happen for them. Um, so um, I, I don't know what Kevin, yeah. I don't know that Kemp has time really to think about this uh, while he's doing also yeah. trying to yeah. you know do the coronavirus. But yeah, down the line, yeah, I mean this this is going to be there's going to be nonstop um, advertising and 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 talk of this uh, all the way through the November election. Yeah, I, I think right. she's in so Ellen and Tamara. You do, I do. I think I think she's in big trouble. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, I mean, Doug Collins is already attacking her uh, over this. You know, she has to she has to go through this jungle primary that's going to take place uh, on Election Day in November uh, with candidates from both parties running at the same time and try to make it in, into a, a very likely runoff. And and right now, I mean, I haven't seen any any polling on this recently, but I, I, I think that this is this has got to, to hurt her. And uh, it's certainly going to be used against her by Collins. It's going to be used against her if she makes it uh, into the runoff against the Democrat. It'll certainly be used against her by by a, a Democratic challenger as well. Tamara, I want to throw one thing at you, and then you can answer it any way you want. I did get an email from a listener yesterday who I thought raised a fair question. He said, has anybody bothered to look at the trades that Kelly Leffler makes in a given period of time routinely? In other words, is there anything extraordinary about these trades in this particular time, or is this the sort of thing that happens fairly routinely in the life of her finances? Of course, buying a, a, a company, buying stock in a company that uh, provides software for stay-at-home workers uh, makes you wonder about that as well. But go ahead, Tamar. And, and look, I'm not sure about what she's regularly trading. She only, um, you know, she only had to file her first public report a couple months ago once she got appointed, but she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more than that. So 1.5 million that she's trading 
in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not much for her. But it, it's also worth noting, you know, there's the public perception of whether this is a conflict of interest or an ethical lapse. But then there's the, the law, which yes. is, is relatively weak for members of Congress. There was a law passed in 2012 that said you can't trade stocks or, or do anything based on non-public information, including briefings you might get as a senator from an agency head. But it's really hard to prove that. And as we saw with Tom Price, as he was uh, getting vetted to be Health and Human Services Secretary, as other senators were vetting him, that, that did not bother a lot of other Republicans. At the same time, we saw Chris Collins from New York, who's getting sent to jail for stuff like that. So eyes in the eyes of the public. But it's also, but again, Tamar Hellman gets the last example. word on, oh, yeah. real quick. I, I, I think it's James, go ahead for, real, real quick. I think okay, it's a bigger problem for Burr. Uh, uh, b- because he's not that wealthy, and, and it's very un- would be very unusual for him to make those 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 sorts of trades at, at that moment. Right. Yeah. So, but it's, I think it hurts Leffler as well. I got. I, all right, I got to interrupt uh, because we are so out of time that uh, I'm barely going to have a chance to thank all of you for being on today's show. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Keep your distance and have the best day you possibly can. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow.